0: Open your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel chapter 5, we are going to read verses 17 through 25 the end of the chapter. The last story, the last uh, small vignette that we find in 2 Samuel 5. Before you read it, let's pray. For God, we thank you that you have Gather our hearts now around the table of your word. We declare as we come that we are still needy. We need you to open us and to (coughs) do divine surgery on us. We need you to prepare us to receive. We need you to give us ears to hear. And so, God, we ask that by the power and the ministry of your Holy Spirit among us, or that you would enable us now to read your word, for it is good and true and right, and that you would help us to see it as it is, that we would glean truth and um, be helped from In Christ's name, we pray. amen. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning to read in verse 17. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the, of, in the valley of Raphaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Karazim, and David defeated the Philistines. David defeated Them there, and he said, The Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rabbaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Okay, it's God's word that is good for us. As we have been looking uh, this past Sunday, a week ago, at 2 Samuel chapter 5, we had seen that the promises of God have come to be. They have come to fruition in David's life. So that by the hand of God, as were, literally, according to God's promise and according to God's provision and in God's timing and providence, David, based on God's promise, has now ascended to the throne over all of Israel. So that previously, after Saul's death, he came to reign in Hebron, this small area in the southern kingdom of Judah, but all of the other 11 tribes of Israel remained in the north, and they did not submit themselves to David's reign in the south, and so there was this divided kingdom, and some years went by as David continued to wait upon the Lord and trust God as he reigned in the south, that, that there was no uh, coming together of those two sides. And he, I'm sure, wondered often how it was that God would bring about his purposes in his life. And I'm thankful for the text that we have before us because as much as the first few vignettes in the first 16 verses of chapter 5 of Second Samuel, as much as they tell us that God did, according to his word, and God did Based on his promise, and that God did and will and will always continue to bring about his promises for his people. That's a great encouragement to us. In verses 17 and following, what we find is that it shows us an example of how he did it. And I think this is incredibly important for us to realize. God does not always, we don't always know what God's doing. God doesn't always unfold his plans in history and the purposes behind what he's doing. He doesn't always tell us. This is what I'm going to do, and this is how it's going to be done. And so sometimes we have to walk by faith and not by sight. In fact, that's often the case. But it's a great encouragement, isn't it, to us as the people of God when, and this was not just written for them, because it was not written until after the experience and after they walked through this experience, but it is for us to be a great encouragement to our souls to press on and trusting in God as we see how is that God has delivered David to the throne of Israel. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful testimony of the power of God, the providence of God, of his working in the lives of his church and of his people to establish his promises for them and over them. So what I want us to do then is to consider how it is that God delivered David and delivered his people Israel from the Philistines. So, I want to be very practical this morning, but I think that it's going to be incredibly important and even encouraging. So, the first thing is we must take note of verses 17 and 18 and 19, particularly the very beginning. I'm struck by these verses. I'm struck by these verses as we consider how it is that God will deliver. When we read verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, then the Philistines went up to search for David. So they're going to now come out and encamp against Israel. They're going to encamp and establish themselves in the valley of Rephaim to come against David who's now king over Israel. The interesting thing is this is a matter of sequence or timing. When they heard that David had become king over Israel, then they go out. Now this is is a point of some note, I think, in the text that is easily missed, but you must remember what I said last time, that when we consider all of 2 Samuel 5, we're forced to realize that it's not a story in chronological order. Let me give you one example. If you go back up to verse eleven, it says, And Hiram, King of Tyre, the messengers to David, cedar trees and carpenters and basins, and they built David a house. And this in chapter five seems to come relatively early, almost right off the heels of him taking the throne in Israel. But we know from other places in Scripture that this is a story, an actual occurrence that took place much later in his reign. So it would come after what we're reading now in verses 17 and following. So of course to wrestle with the reality that although in, in the overall sense 2 Samuel is a historical narrative where God is helping us to see and to understand and to know the story of what was going on in Israel at that time and with David and Saul and all of these characters, it does not mean that the text cannot be structured any different. But if we realize, as we said last week, if you were with us, that this is not in chronological order, it is in, if you will, theological order. That at times, the Holy Spirit inspired writers not with the primary goal of (coughs) narrating or with giving chronology, but sometimes that's the difference. Sometimes the things are mixed up and moved around and arranged in a way so that we can be captivated into text theologically. Theologically, and all I mean by theologically is to teach us something about God, who God is, what God is doing, the way God works. And friends in Second Samuel chapter five, that's what will be shown. Now, it's interesting though. In verse seventeen and eighteen, we're given this detail of timing about when the Philistines come out against Israel, when David and his men hear of it and go down to the stronghold. We don't know. Really Wherever that was. And that now, it says in verse 18, they come and spread out in the valley of Raphaim, Rath- and then they will require the Lord. There's all this timing in the text. If it's not a text that's interested primarily in chronology, but in theology teaching us about God, we must wrestle with the question what do these verses that pertain to the timing of the event teach us about God's deliverance of David and Israel? The answer, friends, is that we learn that God delivers by His wisdom or His providence. That God delivers His people by His wisdom or His providence. We may easily see from this detail, from these, the sequence of these events as they are given, that God in His inscrutable wisdom and according to His providential purposes blinds the eyes of our enemies so that they are too stupid to prevail against us. And I don't mean to be funny. I mean that in, in, in the most sincere and genuine sense that I can. See, here's the question. We're told from the text that they wait until David takes the throne of all 12 tribes of Israel. till so the kingdom is solidified and unified, unify and fortified in Mount Zion, the city of Jerusalem, that they have now taken from the Jebusites, we saw that last week, that all these promises of God have now come to them Why, oh why, have the Philistines waited until now to rise up against David? Because we're told in the text that now that the Philistines hear David is the anointed king in Israel, they go out to search for him and they establish their camp in the valley of Rephaim. A note: I do not mean this. Sort of ultimate provision of God that He, in His absolute wisdom and providence, that He blinds the eyes of our enemies so that they would be too stupid to prevail against us. I do not mean that in the sense of the micro. For for the, the very details, of even the life and story of David ascending the throne would speak against that. There were plenty of little micro instances where where David was having a very difficult time and where the enemies of David seem to be prevailing but if we step back and consider in the macro in the grand scheme of the nature of what God is doing then what we are forced to realize is that in spite of all of the enemies that sought to come against David and sought to come against Israel and sought to prohibit and stop and thwart God's plans for establishing over his people then we are forced to realize that God was not to be thwarted. And that the ultimate reality, in the grandest sense, is that though the enemies of God may try, God will see to it in His wisdom that they cannot prevail because they're simply too stupid. Friends, the Philistines were not fools. They were not fools. But look at their sheer folly in light of their timing. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 30 and 31... Then you see as the book of 1 Samuel comes to a close that the, the ending is bifurcated. Then it goes in two different directions and we're told what is happening to David and then we're given a separate occurrence of what is happening with King Saul. David um, is being rejected from the armies of the Philistines and in God's prophet being kept from having to fight against those that he would one day serve as king. Because remember, David found refuge in the camp of the Philistines. And so David, having been rejected from the Philistines, goes out against the Amalekites where he is victorious. That's one story that we're given at the end of 1 Samuel. The other side of that is Saul and Israel, as he is king over them, the Philistines rise up against them, and they t- take up arms and go out against the Philistines. And on Mount Gilboa, the Israelites are slaughtered. Right? So, so you have this story, uh, these two instances of what was going on, and Saul goes out and leaves the children of Israel out. And they are slaughtered that day on the Mount of Gilboa against the Philistines, who now are coming up against Israel again. We don't know all the time that has passed. But it does say, the question, friends, why would they not have pursued their victory immediately? Why, why, after the victory on Mount Gilboa, as they saw to come <laughs> against the armies of Israel, and to bring down the king and the kingdom of Israel, why would they enjoy such a fantastic victory, it seemed, over God and his people on Mount Gilboa at the end of 1 Samuel, why did they wait Hindsight, I guess, is 2020 that may seem foolish now, but they were not fools. The Philistines were one of the greatest military forces of the world in their day. They conquered men and in countries innumerable. And and people trembled before the Philistines as a nation. If you think back to when David and Goliath, the story of the Israelites being camped. Opposite the Philistines out at war, how terrified the people of God were that the Philistines would overtake them. So, why not that day on Mount and the days that would come after? Why not eliminate Israel then? When they had no king, their biggest problem, King Saul, the leader that solidified the nation, he was now gone. So, here they are without a king. Their hopes have been dashed upon the rocks of Mount Gilboa, as it were, and yet they do not see or seize their opportunity. Why? Because of the wisdom and the providence of God, my friends. When they looked upon the country, the nation of Israel, and they saw this divided kingdom in the time that would come after, and they saw the bitter hatred. And the insubordination of the 11 tribes of Israel that they have conquered. At least with regard to the, their insubordination to David. And there was this divided kingdom where David's reigning and moving in the south from Judah. Why would they not swoop in and play the two sides against one another? It would have been a military genius. We've already conquered the Israelites in the north. Now David has a very small very insignificant role in his place of God's people in the south and all of the other 11 tribes in the north they are unwilling to submit to his reign and to his rule why oh why would these brilliant military mighty men the Philistines would they not have seen and taken their opportunity to enlist the northern tribes whom they had conquered in defeating the southern tribe of Judah and David And, and if you go even further In our own text today uh, Because we've already read it together You know that they come up against David and the Israelites now As they encamp in the valley Of Rephaim and they are defeated Miserably and so what do they do They immediately try it again Same story Different day They're being made to look Foolish They're being made to look Silly. Friends, I don't know about the reasoning of the Philistines at the time, and I can't speak for them. But the truth of this text and that I'm trying to draw out for you it should remind us and it should should prick us if we know something of our Bibles to go to First Corinthians. Because in chapter one and chapter three, and I'm gonna read not Necessarily in order, but listen to the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 3. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose the low and despised to bring to nothing the things that are. Paul's going to go on. He says, Let no one deceive himself if anyone among you thinks he's wise. In this age Let him become a fool That he might become wise For the wisdom of this world Is folly with God for it is written He catches the wise In their craftiness What do you think that means? They thought they were smart They thought they had a good plan Friends in God's providence And according to God's wisdom God is orchestrating all of these things, even the decisions that the Philistines made, so that they would not stand against David and his people, Israel. He catches the lies and their craftiness, and again it says, "The Lord knows the thoughts of the lies, and they are futile." And so His summary judgment in First Corinthians one is, "Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord." Friends, let us learn these two things from this. Truth in this passage First Never forget that you serve an awesome God Never forget that you serve an awesome God That is mighty to save Isaiah 63 As one commentator put it He holds the minds and hearts Of his creatures in his hand And in his wisdom He brings to nothing the wise And the power of this world Friends he is Awesome. Secondly, never forget that when we are hard-pressed like David, when the kingdom is divided and in turmoil, and when we have no strength of our own left, when our enemies have against and all around us, he will blind their eyes and cloud their judgments, lest they strike at the right time and bring to nothing his church. See, friends, we're. Weak and frail. And in God's promise, sometimes we are weaker and more frail. And if the enemy would only pounce on us, then maybe they would be victorious. But they don't. And they don't because God restrains them, because He does not intend that anything come against His children or His church, because He has promised to prevail. He has promised to preserve it. Their hope is sure sure, the God that we serve, who owns everything, for whom Christ Himself, God has put all things in subjection to and under his feet. Friends, this is the God that directs all of the steps of all of his creatures. He holds all of them in his hands, and friends, he orchestrates all of their actions for the benefit, the blessing, and the preservation of his church. Friends, the evil cannot come against us and prevail. Because God makes them too dumb Because they don't make good enough decisions They're not strong enough They think that they're wise But God uses us The low and the spies To bring to nothing the wisdom of the world Let us learn them to rest in God And in His promise To hold us in His hand And to bring us safely to Himself Because He, he will so not only does he deliver by his wisdom, then let's move on. We see from this text that God delivers David and the Israelites by his grace. The simple reality that he is concerned with their affairs is an act of his grace. The simple, the simple truth from the, the grand scale of all of this, that the God of all creation knew what was going on in Israel that day, is a sheer act of astounding grace. But even more than that, we see the particular grace for God's people on display in this passage. See, there's a contrast being made, and I don't want you to miss it, between the way God dealt with King David here and the way that God dealt with King Saul previously. Notice that at the beginning of each of these episodes with David and the Philistines, that he comes to inquire of the Lord, verse 19, and David inquire, inquire of the Lord. Then down in verse 23. And so when David inquired of the Lord, and he asks him what it is that he should do. Now, if you remember back into 1 Samuel 28, uh when when, when the Philistines came against the children of Israel, you'll remember that King Saul, who had tells us to put all of the necromancers, all of the wise men out of the kingdom all of the necromancers were gone those who would seek wisdom from the dead and call up the spirits of the dead he had put all of the necromancers out of the kingdom and so when the Philistines came against Saul and the children of Israel what did Saul do? he inquired the Lord the question was, is did, did God answer? if you go back to 1 Samuel 28 what you'll find is that, that God did not answer God was silent God did not speak to Saul And provide him with the leadership That we see him giving to David In these verses And what a contrast this is And what a lesson it is That David inquired of God And the gracious God Answered him Friends have you ever Have you ever considered How significant a reality It is that you may speak with the Almighty. And so much more than simply being given a voice in His court, which is a reality that we are beyond unworthy of, but so much more than simply being able to grovel at His feet and speak in His presence, He not only listens, but He reciprocates. The King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. The God of Glory. The beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega. The one who was and is and is to come. That He allows you to speak and He listens when you cry. And He reciprocates in response that He speaks to you. Friends, it is a significant thing that when David faced the intense opposition of the enemies of God, he did not move to the right or to the left without first inquiring of the Lord. Friends, how fast are we running whatever direction we travel? How fast are we headed to wherever it is that we're going? And how often, or lack thereof. Do we stop and seek guidance from God? Do we ask, and when we ask, do we sit and listen, that that we might be made privy to the response of the Almighty God of creation? Friends, this juxtaposition between. Saul and his rejection and God's silence and David and his acceptance and God's answer. It is a great encouragement to us first to be encouraged to seek him with all of our hearts. Friends, God listens. And after listening, he responds. It is a, it is a condescending act of his grace. That he stoops to our level and speaks a language that we can understand and cares enough about the affairs of your life such to to be there and and, and to give you some sort of guidance. Proverbs 8, 17, I love those who love me, he says, and those who seek me diligently find me. Jeremiah twenty-nine verses twelve and thirteen. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, and seek me with all of your heart. Second Chronicles seven fourteen—a verse that you all probably know well. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. We gloss over that. That is a, an astounding. Friends, we serve with God of hears By his grace, and a God who answers. By his grace. And friends, if he does not answer, if he does not answer, then we will certainly, like Saul, perish. Then let us ask. So first, it encourages us to ask with all of our heart. But secondly, let us then be encouraged to ask all of the time, and not just when the Philistines are outside, Around us, that was one of Saul's problems. If you go back to First Samuel, one of the things in Saul's life, one of the patterns that you will clearly see is that he knew God, he knew of God, he knew something about the things of God, and yet that he evidently knew that he needed to inquire of God. The problem is that he would often inquire and then not listen. Ultimately, he was rejected. He would not ask at all. He would come up with some ingenious plan of his own. Some, some human method, some human needs. He would trust in himself. Lean not on your own understanding. Right? But in all your ways acknowledge him. And, and then when, when his ingenious plans fell flat on their face, he would inquire of the Lord. That's what you see at the end of it of 1 Samuel, and God refuses to answer. Friends, that is in direct contrast and comparison to the faithful inquiring of God that David displays. And friends, it should encourage us to what should be the pattern of the Christian life that we would pray without ceasing. For God is not a genie to be brought out when we need Him. We need His gracious help and His gracious answer for every single step that we take. And if we take it apart from Him, we take it to our detriment and destruction. Thirdly, it encourages us to learn to listen carefully. To learn to listen carefully. There's another caveat here. When David comes to inquire of the Lord in two very, very similar circumstances. The Philistines hear to these king. they come out to encamp against him, they seek him for his life and his throne, and so they uh, establish themselves in the valley of Revenim. David inquires of God, shall I go up? That is the idea, shall I march up to their face? Shall I approach them probably from the front or a typical military style? Shall I go up to them? And the first instance, God said, yeah, yes, go up and I will deliver them into your hand. He defeats them as God promised. And then they encamp again in the valley. They come up against Israel again. Very similar, almost the same situation. And David asks again, well, that's important. He did not take the message that God delivered to him the first time and just think that that just saw well I asked him did, and this is the same kind of situation. So there's no need to go back to him. So, so he asks him again, and he gets a different answer. He says, Shall I go up? And God says, No. Go around behind him and listen for the wind and the trees to blow the sound of marching. And when you do, then come out against them, and I will have gone before you to deliver them into your hands. Friends, it's easy for us to seek God in some certain situation and to be faithful to that end and then to take the answer that He gives and, and, and employ it in many varied and different continuing situations that come thereafter. But friends, God delivers and directs and redeems in various ways, and he does so so that we will continually be needy of him. If, if, if it was always the same way, you could just be needed once. He gives us the medicine that we need, and we just take the medicine and dose it again and again and again, but God is not some medicinal remedy, and it's He's not to be dosed He is to be pursued And friends when we pursue him like this He will be faithful to answer But but God often varies the way of his deliverance So as to remind us as people That we are continually needy of him We must come again and again and again And when we come again as David did Let us be careful then to listen Because he may direct us this way or that (coughs) And we must always be careful to go as instructed. Well, he delivers by his grace, but uh, I will move on from that. His gracious answer to where we can finally see from this passage that he also delivers by his awesome power. And friends, frankly, I think that this is the main thrust of this text. If you simply read it face value, just a, a cursory reading of Second Samuel. Chapter 5, particularly verses 17 to 25, you should come away astounded at the power of God on display to deliver his children. Very quickly, it will be helpful to see that. In these two separate episodes, where there are two different methods being employed, the text in both accounts takes great care to show us that the power expressed. In the different methods In the different circumstances Is the same singular power of God at work And though it came in varied ways It is the same power By which God's people are delivered In the first story If you look at verse 20 You see here a word A Hebrew root word that is used three times First And then it came to Baal Parazim It's parash, the, the The root word here And it's repeated again three times in that verse. And it literally means to burst out. So that baal Herazim, the name of the place where they were victorious, they named it the Lord of Burstings Out. What's he talking about? What is he trying to help us to see? Well, this word, it carries the nuance of water bursting through a dam or a floodgate that is... That is overpowered by the sheer force of the water. That then rushes into some area and devastates everything in its path. You see that here in the language. Notice in verse 20. David defeated that area and he said, the Lord has burst through my enemies like a bursting flood. <coughs> he has burst through my enemies like a bursting flood. And we have hurricanes here. So y'all know we have hurricanes here. And hurricanes are a mixture of wind and water. If you want to know exactly whether or not it was wind or water, um, to understand all you have to do is ask the insurance company and they know exactly what it was. I think a better analogy is that of tsunami, where the sheer force of water levels everything. Where where water comes in, I mean, if you watch videos, one of the fascinating things, it's not a Crashing, rolling like surfing tight wave. It's just a smooth looks calm. Flood of water that makes its way onto land. But friends, under, underneath in the torrent, skyscrapers are lifted off of their foundation and washed away to nothing. Friends, the power of God that delivered the children of Israel this day was like that of a mighty sumari, So that they named the place Baal Koseen. In the second instance, God is described If you look there as the one who has gone out before you. Notice in 23, the latter party says, You shall not go up, but go around to the rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And then when you hear the sound of the tops of the trees, rouse yourself by For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. This is another common Hebrew term that is used of the going out in military might. Now, I like horror movies and stories, whether it's an ancient story of old or whether it's a modern uh, sort of war story. But in all of those stories, whether ancient or new, there are two types of leaders. You have the kings or the rulers or the presidents, you know, whatever the case may be, and they sort of sit in the back. And they direct and they give the orders. And they muster the troops so and they send down the directors. Right? Like they're not riding out. So you have the rulers that rule from the, from, from the rear. And then you have the generals who are not the kings because they're not quite that important, but they're the ones that the men of the the the, the 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 garrisons actually look to for leadership and courage, and, and and they're the ones who often mount their horse and hold up their sword and ride ahead of all of their men and compatriots in arms, and they go off into battle before them, and put their life on the line as they're asking their men to do. The funny thing is that the the scriptures the scriptures liken God to a king general. He is the king but he is also the one that goes out before us as a mighty warrior, a mighty general, one who is utterly confident and capable of delivering those that he brings in behind him. Friends, there is no doubt there is no battle that God asks his church to face that he is not already facing and has not already It may not be popular in the church today To talk about God in these terms I don't quite care In a church culture That seeks to Domesticate God To some warm and fuzzy kitten That that you can come up next to Like your boyfriend or girlfriend Friends listen God is gracious and kind And loving and merciful He cares for us more than a mother or a father. He sticks to us closer than a friend or brother. Yes, but he is also the God of all gods. He is the mighty. He is the holy one. He is the righteous judge of all creation. When we talk about the hand of God that set David on the throne of Israel, we must talk in the terms this text uses of the hand of severity and sovereignty that came to place it there. It was the hand that unleashed a mighty flood. of God. It is the hand that bore the sword as he led his children out into battle. That is the God that is spoken of as bringing David to the throne of Israel and brings that is the God that will ultimately give us hope and confidence and peace. Why? Because it is before that God that his foes are already dead. It is that God that will be feared and our own last day. It is this God that gives us hope that our victory is sure. Hope that our enemies must fail. Hope in the consummation and establishment of his eternal kingdom and that at his name every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Instead, that is our hope. And our hope is not in some weak, domesticated, impotent deity. As one commentator pointed out, Those are the kind of enemies who are picked up off the battlefield and thrown away like a worthless one. But the God of gods, the God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, He leads men into battle only victorious. He redeems them. He preserves them according to His inscrutable wisdom and providence. By His Gracious care and with his mighty and awesome power. Let's trust in him.